0: This is the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, episode number 54. Number 54. Wow. Making progress. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary here, I think, next week. Uh, Time you get this podcast. I will be out at the Guardian Conference. But as always, I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, the off duty, on duty podcast. We tackle topics relevant to today's gun owners from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on duty law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm joined by DB, who is recently back from uh, a training sabbatical of epic proportion. And we're going to talk about your human adapt. And it's all going to be sitting around Weaver ISO stance. So those of you cops from uh, back in the 90s that got the Weaver thing probably pitched to you wrong. And those of you, you know, in the civilian category or the law armed populace category that uh, maybe have no interest in it. You can uh, maybe garner some value from actually learning the Weaver stance. But first, today's sponsors, as always, excess Sites. Title sponsor of the podcast Check them out at excess Get uh, sites for your favorite blaster. CCW safe legal service membership for concealed carriers and law enforcement officers. You want 10% off your membership. Go to checkout Enter code off duty. 10 will save you 10%. Guardian conference is starting. Uh, actually kind of the pre-show is starting right now. Uh, by the time you get this podcast, we'll be underway. But so I think uh, it's kind of kind of too late to jump in there now. But anyway, if you can't this year, I look forward to seeing you next year. Concealed carry podcast giveaway this week's prize winner was Richard, and he won some Palm Pepper spray. Next week's giveaway prize is a Flight ninety three nine eleven commemorative ball cap. We are uh, just past the 20th year of the 9-11 terrorist attack. So sign up and have a chance to win the flight 93 nine eleven ball cap. Got to sign up weekly. Link is in the show notes. Without further delay, let's bring in our guest, Daryl Bulky. Welcome back, Daryl, to the Off-Duty, On-Duty <laughs> podcast. And uh, back from, as I introduced it in the pre-show An extended sabbatical of immersive training is all I could quantify it as.
1: Oh, yeah, is uh, I'm exhausted. Um, 21 hours of driving on each end. Um, Stopped in Oklahoma Oklahoma City to pick up little David Cagle because I had to have my my road sidekick. He's actually a pretty good little road dog because we can talk about guns the whole trip. Right, So that's good. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we like the same music to listen to eighties and not roll his eyes. So it was good. And then, uh, yeah, I spent, uh, four days up at primary and secondary conference teaching. And then, uh, four days with, uh, Larry Mudgett at Marksmanship Matters with an incredible crew of an, fellow instructors up there to take that class with Larry and,
0: and one luminary.
1: And, one luminary. A luminary luminary yeah we had Dobbs with us so we had the luminary and you know he's now demanding that we call him the luminary i mean he wants full props for that so which is okay Wayne wayne kind of deserves that he was certainly uh luminous in his element yeah well he was in his element at Marksmanship matters. So that was pretty good. So with, uh, Larry, cause the, uh, you know, it was a freak show of trigger pressing. So <laughs> some of us had to work. So some, some of us had to work hard and Wayne was in his happy place. So you had that. Right. So, well, excellent. So
0: given that you've just spent, uh, you know, four days with Larry, which from talking to you before you spent a considerable amount of time with him, when you were a very young policeman, um, so yeah, I'm sure he's he shaped your
1: future quite, uh, quite soundly yeah. from there. I was blessed to have him in 1988 when I was there, 1989, when I was an idiot. So, uh, it really, it really helped to have that early to see what professional firearms training is supposed to look like, um, and what acting like a professional looks like, uh, and discipline and all these other things i it was good to get larry in 89 but equally so it was pretty good to get larry again here in 2021 so that's a big span of time in between and uh and you know the the thing is is not much has changed with him um that was a topic of a lot of discussion on on do you change? Why do you change? Should you change? Uh, and you're know, coming off of four days at primary and secondary, where I was surrounded by some of literally the best, most modern, well-developed technical shooters to watch them work. And that's where I came up with a whole bunch of conclusions and discussions with uh, little David on the way home. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, uh, he's moved up though. All these training trips, he's got new nicknames. So it's uh, Buzz Lightyear right now, which was a a big uh, improvement for him from uh, what I had him was calling him before. So,
0: (laughs) it's funny that that harkens a piece (laughs) of my le history is when I was uh, when I first went to uh, a a different patrols, I went to day shift patrol, and I was working around the quasi old guys, and I had just turned the right young age of 30. And, uh, mm-hmm. I had, uh, my partner, this guy named Ron Thomas, he is cut just like Buzz Lightyear. He has the Buzz Lightyear figure, mm-hmm. right? And I weighed, I weighed all of about 190 pounds. And, uh, it's been a few years and, <laughs> and they nicknamed us Buzz and Woody. <laughs> so that was, yeah. so for his <laughs> retirement party in 2015, 2014, I got the Buzz and Woody figures and put them in
1: his cake so, and yeah, uh, well, that's what, with, with, with David, it's more of his enthusiasm than anything else. He is, he is quite enthusiastic and it's, it's appreciated. And he's been working super hard. Yeah. And- it's hard to find, find in somebody his age, this, that, you know, at this level. So he's now been with uh, all the people who brought me up. I mean, we got him with, uh, you know, he did an advanced class with Scott Reitz, uh, I, uh, he, uh, got to have dinner, uh, long dinner for something. I think four and a half hours with John Helms, uh, got to spend, you know, four long days with Larry Mudgett, um, got to spend a bunch of time with John Ray, uh, Jared rest. I mean, he's gotten some great exposure uh, on the cop side of things. So yeah, he he's, he's been doing good for a young kid to find, you know, really good people to mentor under on the L E side. So,
0: yeah. And then he kind of, had that foundational bringing or bringing uppance or whatever you would call it, a mentorship oh, with, from
1: uh, Paul, Paul Howe. Yeah. No, no. And he, he goes back to, you know, he's still wearing a CSAT stuff at every class. I mean, he, he built his foundation on Paul Howe's system. And that was the, a lot of topic that we co- covered that, you know, when you build on a good foundation, you can build a great house and then do kind of what I've done over the years is add on some room additions when it makes sense. And every so often I'll tear out a bathroom and completely redo something. But the foundation and the basis for me is still completely uh, modern technique basis was taught by the LAPD guys back in the late eighties with the, with, you know, a phenomenal firearms cadre they had, uh, with D team back then. So, um, that's what I built my foundation on of that, that level of, uh, depth of modern technique that was fully adapted to what I was doing. But, you know, I've added a lot of room additions since then and made a bigger house, but you know, I, I really go back to that. So.
0: Yeah. That I can't remember John or Lee Weems podcast. He was talking with someone about, you know, modern technique and the west coast how that permeated you know through you know
1: that, that that'd be me was that you on his pocket <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: and then yeah. on yeah. the east coast and, um, you had the ppc like it was like oklahoma divided the country mm-hmm. and you had everything east of oklahoma was all ppc and everything west was all modern technique and i got smashed right in the middle of both of them so it was really kind of a
1: yeah, you know okay. an interesting place to be and it was simply geography. There was some guys doing some really good work with modern technique on the East side of the country, but there just weren't a whole lot of them because it wasn't a, like, you know, coming from SoCal out to, to, you know, Paulden was a, you know, it's a day drive. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an easy, it was a pretty easy drive out there, uh, in those days where, you know, it was sort of an adventure to try to come from the East side of the country. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And that, uh, That kind of crushed PPC for a long time when they moved it to, uh, uh, New Mexico, the, the attendance at nationals dropped off. And I I don't know if that was just due to revolvers or what it was, but a lot of it had to do with, that's a heck of a drive from, you know, Southern Florida. So, uh, and a lot of the the top ppc shooters even though came from the west coast back in the 80s you know the john prides and
1: yeah absolutely you know yeah
0: so yeah. but oklahoma was kind of the melting pot of you know you had dudes that had been on the east coast or competed us psa or IPSC back then and then you had dudes that were you know affluent in ppc and they just all kind of met here so it was right yeah it was a good
1: location, a
0: a good boiling down. And yeah, and I got to see both angles of that. So,
1: yep, absolutely.
0: You know, and the, the odd thing was, you know, when I came on, the big argument was our department had just switched over to shooting from a weaver, uh, which was a really pardon the language, bastardized weaver stance I felt like, uh, to, like the modern isosceles, which really wasn't. It was more the forties OSS square footed technique, you know, and uh, it was it was really unique to see that because I got taught the modern technique by guys that had been to gunsight and spent right. spent, you know, months of training out there on the government's dime. And uh and I was like, this police weaver looks nothing like I was taught. Looks nothing like it. And yeah. And then when I got into the competition circles and guys were shooting this isosceles technique, it looked nothing like the isosceles technique I was taught uh, you know, in police work. It was again kind of a bastardized technique and So
1: we're good at, we're good at bastardizing things without understanding them. We're very good at that. I found it, it it took me a few decades, but I've got this down now that we have bastardized a ton of stuff. And it's why I've gone back to, and it's kind of why I've instilled with David to go out and get this training. I mean, he just did a class at Farnham this weekend. It's like, um, you know, you're 23 and know how to shoot. Um, you're going to all these guys to figure out where this stuff came from, from the horse's mouth, as opposed to uh, watered down 73 times and through various organizations and agencies. And I think that's what our biggest problem is, is how this stuff is getting watered down, how it's getting uh, taken apart, who's teaching what, and a lot of teaching based on uh, poor understanding of what you think you're teaching and you know that's kind of the topic of this of uh you know we're human beings we need to adapt um that comes in with you also need to know what you're trying to adapt to and often i believe people are resistant to things because your cult of whatever training uh organization you're in says it's a bad thing or there's been labeled as something that is misconstrued and uh, you get cult of personality going there's a whole lot of factors but what I came away with over the last pretty solid uh, 10 days of immersion was you know you just need to adapt because everybody's sort of right and everybody's sort of wrong mm-hmm. and uh you know if you know the people have an idea of what weaver is without understanding what weaver is weaver is simply shooting with isometric tension to stabilize the the pistol period that's it and uh your revolver i'm going to use pistol interchangeably right. uh, but you are using a push-pull methodology of applying isometric tension to the firearm or to the handgun to stabilize it uh what what jack Weaver really did and it's funny because i shoot a weaver that looks a lot like jack weavers because i've had a massive had a massive shoulder injury uh my first couple months on the job in 1988 so two things happened uh weaver worked really good for me because i have a bum shoulder and uh i shot appendix because i couldn't really draw from anything behind my hip with that shoulder injury uh jack weaver had some shoulder issues as well but what he really did was uh, let's see. We brought sights into the eye line. We stabilized the pistol with uh, isometric tension. We used the flash sight picture because he was shooting a K thirty eight versus all the other guns that had horrible sights. And the K thirty eight has wonderful sights. It's a target pistol yeah. uh, or target revolver. I mean, the K thirty eight is sort of a, a wondrous thing if you want to shoot little tiny groups with a thirty eight revolver. That's the gun. Yeah. And so. What, what Weaver did was bring the gun into the eye line, stabilize the gun with isometric tension, and used a flash sight picture or surprise break. Period. That's it. There's not a whole lot more or less. How your feet, <laughs> what your feet are doing, is like completely irrelevant. Uh, it has nothing to do with it. Um, where I find the greatest use for Weaver is, is shooting seated. Uh, for me, I've been more married to the Harry's flashlight technique and the ability to shoot inside a vehicle is more important to me than anything else. Uh, because even as a cop spent most of my time in a car and I worked 19 years of, uh, nights on weekends. So I tended to always have a flashlight in my hand with a handgun. Uh, those two factors ended up that I tended to be a very much a Weaver based shooter. Uh, and think about,
0: think about the flashlights of the era. I mean,
1: oh, forget the, forget the era of the flashlights. Now it doesn't matter. The, the reality of this is I'm just going to say it. Uh, I taught a couple of days at, at a primary and secondary of what I called a low speed, low light, which means you use a handheld light, not a special snowflake light, not, not a light that has these special features to it. You can only shoot one technique for some way that nobody actually holds a flashlight uh, for real when you're working. Uh, right. I grab a light like a club and i shoot it efficiently and most of the time i'm searching with it rather than shooting it and i would venture i've been in more low light shootings than most people and uh which is two and you know involve use of a flashlight in both of them including uh harry's and i have searched uh tens of thousands of various rooms and buildings over the years with a flashlight. So what's more important to me, the search technique and the ability to flow and run the light or the ability to shoot with a light that happens once in a very blue moon, if ever for most people. So I wanna be efficient in running the light and the gun together safely, efficiently, and for the task at hand, which is generally gonna be searching or finding threats um, and then you know, go from there. By the same token, I was a isosceles shooter before I started as a cop because I shot competitively. To me, it was a more efficient way to shoot,, uh, to shoot, not to search, not to fight, not to enter in combative, simply to shoot. I found it to be more efficient using bone and muscle lock to stabilize the firearm. And kind of what I came away from this class of watching some very good ISO, shooter, iso isosceles, modern isosceles shooters. And I've been around Wayne Dobbs for enough years that you know I shoot sort of weaver based and Wayne short shoots sort of modern isosceles based. The the thing is we came away from Wayne started as a weaver shooter and went to isosceles. I started as an isosceles shooter and went to weaver. We and you're both shoot both. And you're we both shoot right. Both. <laughs> yeah. That, well, th- that's sort of the point of this is we're right, because what we're going to do, because we know how to do both, is we're going to apply the appropriate way to hold the gun, our stance, to the circumstances present. If I am confined inside of a vehicle where my arms are bent, I, I, I can't move, I can't lock muscle and structure. Efficiently, I'm going to use isometric tension to lock that gun up. Yeah, and I think the reason we see so many malfunctions inside of vehicles involving law enforcement is because they've all been taught that you lock everything up with bone and muscle structure. They can't lock the gun up, and then you know, poof! I don't know why my my normally reliable striker fired pistol is now malfunctioning. Well, that's why. If somebody had taught you how to use isometric tension rather than muscle and structure tension. Uh, your, or that structure to to brace and keep the gun from moving to allow it to recoil and function properly throughout its cycle of operation maybe you wouldn't have had a malfunction yeah so again and again it sort of doesn't make sense to use isometric tension if i'm on a wide open problem i mean i'm out of the vehicle i'm in the field i'm moving and it does look like a uspsa course sort of um, there's no reason not to go ahead and lock up and get as, 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 as hard a lock behind the gun as I possibly can using bone and muscle structure. Yeah. So kind of the point is, uh, back to being a human being, let's adapt to this situation at hand. It doesn't mean, and then use what you're going to use most of the time. And like I said, as a guy who worked nights in a patrol unit, Or, you know, I also spent four years in a helicopter. I worked on a bicycle. I worked in a black and white. I worked in you know unmarked cars. I did the whole thing. Most of the time I was a vehicle-bound law enforcement officer working in the dark. Weaver worked for me. If that wasn't my scenario, then most of the time I might be running isosceles from modern Uh, modern isosceles based, and if you break down sort of modern Weaver and modern isosceles into a fighting platform and you just stabilize the gun with one of those two ways, you pretty much covered the bases, yeah. But you just can't be in a camp, that makes sense. You can't, you can't, you can't be in a camp. You know, you, 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 get, you get excluded from you can't be in somebody's uh, little little gun culture cult and everybody can call you names. You know, it's like, you know, I, uh, one of my, my best pals on the planet is Eric Gellhouse. Uh, everybody <laughs> has to take a drink every time I say Gellhouse on a podcast. You got a drink, so I try not to do it too much. But um, Eric gets hammered all the time while well, you teach out at gunsight. So you're, they're teaching that weaver and it's stupid. Really? You know that's not what they, they pretty much teach whatever works at this point. Um, you got to remember, though, back when a lot of this stuff—for example, when I got it in the '80s—we really didn't have super efficient options, especially when using flashlights like Maglights, Kel Lights, Streamlights. That was big part of the thing. Again, vehicle born. Again, semi autos were new. We didn't quite develop, you know, the, the structure for shooting them efficiently. I I tell people now we're in the golden age of shooting traditional double action autos right now. It wasn't in the eighties when we were carrying them, we finally got them figured out. It just took 30 years, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so it's really kind of funny as I look at people, it's like, and, you know this goes back to grip i i i spent again you know a bunch of time lately looking at a bunch of ways different people are gripping firearms and one of the things i i got from a guy like, named larry nichols quite famous firearms instructor from burbank is i had always had kind of some issues shooting glock pistol uh i liked the guns i had one in the in the uh late 80s first off duty incident i was ever in was with a glock 17 i just couldn't shoot them particularly well and I remember being in a class and Larry walks up to me and he goes, son, because he 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 could call me son at that point because of the age difference and, yeah. you know, you know very veteran status versus very young guy status. And he looks at me, he says, son, that ain't a 1911 pistol. Why are you holding it like one? And banging you know, a whole bunch of lights went on because I did learn to shoot semi-automatic pistols with a 1911. And I did follow all that gun sight, Cooper stuff with the 1911. So I was absolutely holding a Glock like a 1911. And realistically, I was kind of holding it more like a revolver. Right. And, you know, so we've been using, I find it kind of funny that we're using, I, we're fighting today like revolver grips. Okay. This is something I actually know something about. Cause I carried one and we were, I was at the golden age of the revolvers is, you know, we're shooting, Uh, semi autos with revolver grips, we're shooting revolvers with semi auto grips. It's like, I'm looking at some of the stuff with the the revolvers now and the grips being used on them. I'm like, uh, you guys do know that doesn't recoil the same way as an auto. Uh, it doesn't, the parts all are doing different things. You can get your hands and fingers into things that malfunction the gun. Just like if you hold it, you know, if you hold a semi auto wrong, you can malfunction it. Yeah. You will go ahead and use a, a, you know, like a cross thumbs behind the back of back of the thumbs, like if you watch Mitchellick and some of these guys, and particularly Chuck Haggard when they're shooting those little guns, yeah. or or big hard recoiling guns. Try that with a semi-auto. You do. It I have one of my. Well, I well, no, I had one of my officers did it every time, no matter how much we told him, no matter how much he bled. Um, it was just, it It couldn't adapt, couldn't adapt, couldn't adapt. That's always how he shot a revolver. when he went to the semi-auto, it was like, I'll just shoot it the same way and bleed on the range every time I'm there. So I think it starts to get important that we adapt the grip to be efficient for stabilizing the firearm, whatever it is, whether it's revolver, auto, big auto, little auto, little autos, you got to hold differently than big autos. Yeah. Because you can't reload them. Because half the guns, you, you know, uh, you, clearing malfunctions with them is a little different. Chuck and I taught a small pistol and small revolver class, and you, you know Chuck has a whole bunch of stuff on the little pistols because the ma- the manual arms is going to be a little different because they're small. I uh... they, they are not they are not a Glock seventeen, and you can't do the same stuff with them and be efficient. Three sixty five. That
0: gun was. Right. Uh... I found I shot it like a J-frame the most efficiently with my thumbs rolled over and in a Weaver-style a Weaver style stance because I could manage the right. gun better and I could stay off of the control. I could actually get more purchase on the gun shooting it like a small revolver. And I taught a couple of people that and they were just mind blown that you could hold a, a, a semi-auto without your thumbs running beside the slide in the frame. And I'm yeah, I and got you know, big enough pause that mm-mm. when I'd touch off a, a one twenty-four full tilt load, I would burn the end of my thumb on that gun. And
1: right. And so so, so that's sort of the point with this is so you're you found that I, I went against what everybody told me I should do and through a little bit of experimentation moving your hands. And efficiency is not just stabilizing the gun for recoil control because you need to do that. You need to stabilize for recoil control. You need to be able to function the gun. So in the case of the semi-autos, they need a fairly locked up grip in order to allow the slide to move without impeding it to function reliably. And then you factor in the other controls on the gun. And one of the things I note is a lot of people with their, uh, you know, I have to shoot with my thumbs like this or the whole world's going to stop. Hey, you know, in a, uh, whatever sport you're shooting in, and if that works best for you for shooting fast and efficiently to win, whatever sport you're doing, you know, more power to you, knock yourself out. Here's my issue with that. If you're shooting a grip that your slide doesn't lock open when it's empty, Guess what you get to figure out in the middle of a fight? You get to do a tap rack malfunction clearance that now locks the gun open. And now you get to do an emergency out of battery speed reload, which I call a shooter induced malfunction. Now you ran the gun. You've done now in the middle of a fight, you're now going to do two malfunction clearances. You're going to do a failure to fire because you did the slide didn't lock back and you couldn't diagnose that's what the problem was. Then you're going to do the slide lock to the rear on an out-of-battery speed reload, emergency reload. So you get to do two in the middle of a fight because my grip. I can't, you know, because your thumb's riding on or off. But now the other issue with that is usually the same people who are a lot, who can't lock a slide, whose slides won't lock open, A lot of times that thumb gets moved around. Now it's also locking it open in the middle of a string of fire. Mm -hmm. When you're involved in a combative environment, that's unpredictable. Start rolling around fighting in a car and stuff without rolling around the ground. You're going to see what happens with those. It's not kind of like running on a predetermined course of fire. So again, do we, should we become, uh, one of the quotes uh, Mudgett talked about was on Rudel, the fighter pilot, um, you'll know, be at one with the machine. And I am huge on that is these machines all run differently. Um, how I run a TDA, uh, you know, Beretta, SIG, whatever, USP, I, I got my hands kind of a little different because I'm trying to decock the gun the most efficiently way I can. I'm trying to clear controls that are different. For example, with us shooting, you know, we were the probably the first law enforcement agency our SWAT team adopted the USB 45, like right out of the gate. It's got the biggest slide lock in the entire world. You know, you got to clear some room around that thing. Right. So I shoot kind of what people think's a funny grip because I'm trying to clear some of these. It happens to work pretty good with the Beretta as well. Um, which is a gun. I never liked the 92 Beretta. I love the PX4. Uh, the Beretta 92 is not a gun that I'm in love with ergonomically. It's just the gun. I happen to shoot better than anything else that's,
0: there is. That's weird because I'm the,
1: I'm the polar
0: opposite. Mm-hmm. I hated the, the PX4, but I shoot it better than any other gun. I don't even own one. And then the 92 was like, whoever the dude from Beretta was that designed that took a casting of my hand and said, "Yeah, here's the gun, um, which is, you know, I don't know, just genetics or something, but
1: it's the beauty of timers and targets is that, um, the timer and targets don't lie to me and tells me I shoot a Beretta 92 X better, better than anything else on the planet right now and so that's what i do a lot of shooting with it also translates well to the px4 a compact i carry every day and you know uh ernest langdon at langdon tactical i mean they sprinkle some sort of magic unicorn fairy dust on these things that makes them unbelievable uh the actions and stuff on them and they're they're easy for me to shoot uh i shoot them well and I've adapted to them. It's not my favorite gun on the whole planet, but I've adapted well to them because I shoot them efficiently. So again, you don't be afraid to adapt to the machine running. I tell people when like, oh no, I could never change my grip. If I put my thumb in a different place, the whole world will class. come. How do you rent a rental car? You know, that's, yeah. uh, you know, a, a problem is how do you get, how do you, how do you work through getting out of a rental car? Uh, you know, for me getting into just about anything off the truck I drive every day is an experience. And, you know, the, uh, yeah, I'll tell you the, uh, go, go figure out cause my wife has one, you know, how do you unlock the doors on a Range Rover? Uh, cause it's not how you think cause it's English. So it's really screwed up where they put the controls for that. Yeah. And, so you you need to adapt to the machine that you're running you're a human being we are tool users adapt to your tools you can't hold a hammer and a crescent wrench the same way to do the same operations and expect success um, you know if you're one of these you know kind of simpletons I can only hold a hammer like a hammer you're gonna have some problems um, you know you're not getting a job as a mechanic doing that.
0: Well, what I was going to say is as, as we move through this, what I keep, my brain keeps coming back to is foundation foundational, not just because I'm wearing the foundation belt product plug, but no, uh, but the way Uh, that
1: I'm wearing a foundation belt too. everybody (laughs) drink twice. Exactly. (laughs) Gail house
0: anyway. Uh, (laughs) no, but, but because I came up with a pretty solid shooting foundation, Um, you know, people, people will ask me a lot like, well, why do you like the 92? And I'm like, well, it just, it works. Uh, I'm carrying a G 45 currently. I'm doing some experimentation. I've taken the Glock rabbit hole with this gen five thing. And, uh, they're like, well, how do you switch? And I'm like, look, you just adapt. And if you have a solid foundation, the adaptation is not a difficult process. It's a short, um, You know, where do I put my hands? How do I make my hands work for this gun? I don't carry it in the same exact appendix position that I did a 92 because it's shorter. It's a little bit, uh, you know, I don't wear my belt with the same tension. I mean, there's a lot of little adaptation, but the actual firing of the gun, it's minuscule difference between the two platforms. I don't have the decocking step. I don't have all that, that, that nonsense, but it's just, what do I prefer right now? If you have a solid foundation, the gun is kind of irrelevant. It just becomes, what do you prefer? <laughs> you know,
1: you wonder, fundamental structure. If you went to a good school, you went to great instructors early or somewhere along the line, you have, when you go back to your most relevant training and it's awesome, whatever that was, uh, in the middle of a crisis, that's good. But what we're really doing is adapting machines, though, to that. And you need to be able to adapt the machine. You know, I look at where we get kind of a lot of these ideas about that exaggerated uh, stance that everybody associates with Weaver, that's not necessarily Weaver, is, you know, a lot of that came from, you know, particularly, I noted in West Coast law enforcement because of the, Institutionalized use of the field interview stance, how we talk to bad guys combined with the holsters of the era that were all designed to rip the gun out of the front of them, which is how cops were getting killed. So you had that really hard bladed stance just talking to bad guys. Uh-huh. Now you kind of just instill sort of a shooting platform. Then you get, you know, traditional rifle shooters sort of like that. And again, it sort of doesn't matter matter where your feet are it really metabolizes in the gut you know your feet are going to be anywhere you know if you want to base a prediction in a fight on where your feet are going to be you're wrong it's just period um you know there's different ideas and then there's wrong that's wrong if if you think that i'm going to be in this textbook stance and you know i have enough guys with uh a lot of uh, really good success in dominating uh lethal force encounters with the stuff I've taught them over the years. It's based on all of this. Um, I tell you, it kind of didn't matter what they were doing or how they were standing. What mattered was they, uh, you know, they were using as best they could isometric. Tension. uh they were trying to use a good grip but as we found in law enforcement uh, grip actually gets sacrificed a lot i mean if you define the use of the pistol it is truly for an unexpected encounter that's what they're really for i mean if we know we're going to a gunfight uh, I mean, it, we, we do it because that's just the nature of the job in law enforcement, but the reality is it's stupid. um, like a lot of stuff, is we should be taking a long gun to those fights. We just often put a pistol into fights that should be a long gun fight. But for most of the unexpected attacks, what I found was most of the time and go look, start looking at body cam video or dash cam or whatever and you're going to see some really crap grip on the gun. Well, how do you fix crap grip? You fix crap grip with a lot of sights and a lot of good trigger control, which is what I heavily emphasize with my people. Cause it's like, well, if you get a crap grip on the gun, this is how you're going to have to fix it to hit bad guys efficiently by the same token. That's where some of these stances and use of some of these techniques that you adapt work better. Um, when you're going into a hunt for human beings uh, as we do you know typically law enforcement that's really what you're doing you're going to search somebody else's home or somebody else's yard to go find an armed felon i found a lot for me weaver worked very well because i'm employing a flashlight with a firearm uh, I'm, I'm anchoring in some bad positions because body positioning got important on use of cover use of angles, uh, maneuvering a lot of movement involved, that type of thing. Meanwhile, if you kind of get attacked and you can get that gun punched out, locked out with bone and muscle in a solid isosceles, you know you're going to be able to run that gun, and what that's because grip is going to allow you the. So what ISO gives you with a good grip is you don't need a whole lot of sights and trigger, okay. That's just the fact of the matter is, and that's why everybody gets so married to this grip thing. Is God if I got a death vice grip on the gun with my thumbs positioned this way, my hand angled this way, all of these great things, and then lock bone and muscle together, is you know. I can bang that trigger, you know. Getting and s- really move the gun around, and it's going to put the sights right in my eye line. Yeah, I tried not to do it. I know what you're thinking. No, I, I, I was getting a little audio but, you know, delay the, there
0: for a second, and I was, I was just thinking, uh, this is an old story, but I, 2006, I'm sitting in uh, Bill Lockridge's 1911 school, and, and I am doing some. Like pretty work on this gun, and one of the cardinal rules is never set your file on anything above your gun because the file is harder than the metal of the gun and it will scar it. And I, right. I right. drop right. a number two or no, I'm sorry, I drop a mill smooth file and it comes off and it hits my slide and it's like ting and I'm I, I immediately fight back the tears, you know. And Bill looks at me and he goes, "Well, yeah. son." Some people just need a matte blued gun, and the blasting cabinet covers a multitude of sins. And I, I you yeah. know, I kind of lost it, and I was like, oh, huh. <laughs> "That's why we have matte blueing." Cool, but uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but the other part of it was, I went, you know, if you have a solid grip on the gun, that covers a multitude of fundamental sins, right? That is the blasting oh. cabinet for the pistol. Yeah. Makes so sense.
1: So one one of the big one of the big things that came out of last week with Larry is Larry teaches what Larry knows work. And for Larry, that is a cross thumbs grip. He comes, you know, hard from the gun sight world. He has applied this stuff in the real world enough to, I don't need to change it. And, but he is deaf on trigger control and working those with the sights. And what many of us found, uh, David and I both, um is we shoot with a lot of tension in our finger. Now, we've been writing off a lot of mistakes because, you know, so Larry was kind of insistent everybody uses weaver had, uh, isometric based tension on the gun. So what we did is and and you get to the point in a couple of days of class. You got to remember you only fire about 120 125 rounds over 4 days you press the trigger an awful lot. You were doing a lot of ball and dummy. You were doing a lot of dummy stuff. You were doing a lot of malfunctions and presses on that gun with no live ammo in it. So when you actually do get to press a live round off, you're never going to know when it happens and it starts showing some errors. And by the end of the week, you know, nobody was making any bad presses on the gun but what you find was that a lot of stuff we were writing off like, yeah, that's just me putting in a little recoil control early, but you know, my grip kind of covers it. Well, now that your grip isn't covering it, you know, you're getting a big gigantic sight dip, right? All of us in the class. And like I said, this was all a lot of high level instructors. We got, we got trigger presses cleaned up that you didn't have any, any yuck in the trigger. When that trigger broke, it was, it was near perfect. What we started finding out is a bunch of us have over-travel issues. A bunch of us are slamming that trigger all the way to the rear with some over-travel. I'm guilty of it. David, a bunch of us had it. Uh, probably the only one who wasn't a lot, didn't have a lot of that was Dobbs because Dobbs shoots a very, very uh, soft finger when he presses a trigger and the other guy who does its is is, I, I was blessed when he asked for a volunteer, I was the first guy to jump up. I almost pushed people out of the way rudely because I wanted to get on a gun with Larry pressing the trigger on top of my trigger finger to feel his trigger press. Absolutely could not perceive pressure being applied to the trigger. That gun just went off and you didn't feel it. And I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. You know, is there's no excuses. There's no nothing. It's a clean trigger press start to finish. And like I said, a lot of us found out that we have some, we were diagnosing a lot of over travel because we were so clean on the front end of the trigger press that we've been sort of writing off in the past because we could sort of write it off because our grip was fixing it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Man, you combine a modern, Well, good, a a very efficient grip with a very efficient trigger and very efficient use of sights. And at the end of the class, last 12 rounds we shot, which were done with a bunch of dummies in there. So we had a, it it was pretty ball and dummy. Um, Most of us were shooting a single hole. Yeah, you know, I mean, we were shooting at five yards, but you really never know, knew you know, just past five yards. You never knew what you were going to get, whether it was. And most of us literally shot to the absolute mechanical accuracy potential of our pistols because we had worked so many yuck out of our trigger presses and our grips and everything else. So, you know, with that, you kind of go, okay, so why am I not being the most efficient I can all the time? It just means I have to adapt to the situation. And a lot of this is going to be come up with contrary to what everybody, what so-and-so is doing, you know, so-and-so is doing probably something different than you're doing. What are your goals on this thing and where do you need to be working for your world? And let's adapt the tool to properly work for my world. Now for me, I mean, every day I carry a small revolver and a modern semi-automatic service pistol. Usually these days, it's a Ruger LCR and 327 FED mag, which has taken me a lot of time to adapt to the trigger to that, because it is a great trigger for an out-of-the-box gun, but it is different than a J-frame. Mm-hmm. You have really got to let that trigger all the way out every time, or you'll, you'll skip
0: Short some
1: cylinders. It. Yeah. Yep. So I have spent a ton of time on that gun with uh with a zooms in it and then my px4 compact and you know i can go from that i can shoot glocks i can shoot yeah i can kind of shoot anything i'm not always the greatest but i can kind of ad- have adapted that they all have manual arms. that's one of the things i've insisted of david is his whole thing now is shooting super tests he's carrying a staccato um you know he's a, that that's a cult of its own he is deep in the <laughs> staccato cult but
0: that's like the subaru
1: yeah, Langdon Lang Beretta 92. Um, you know, he's got, uh, I ended up getting him into a uh, HK USP 90 millimeter compact so that we can get that LEM converted so he can learn the LEM. So shooting a 1911 style trigger, traditional double action, certainly can run a Glock uh, coming out of uh, the Paul Howe world. He can run that Glock 19 like a boss. And, and is learning how to shoot a revolver well too. So it's one of those things, it's like you can't really be a good instructor instructor and we hand out instructor placards like like candy these days is but you can't to me be a true imparter of wisdom knowledge and experience if you can't get on a gun with whatever the student brought that's of some sort of quality level and have them shoot it um You've got to master a striker gun. You should be able to master a DA revolver. You should be able to master a traditional double action. You can should be able to master all of these things, so that you can help your student out, as opposed to the student adapting to their instructor's instructor yeah. with assault should be able to shoot anything.
0: That's one of my uh, one of the benefits I've had growing up around uh, a gun buff dad that has had one of everything and two of most is the number of times I've been called on the phone. Hey, we don't know how to unload this pistol. Oh, okay, cool. You know, um, or, you know, somebody encounters a, uh, HK squeeze cocker on the street that recovers one and doesn't understand right. how that gun works. Uh, we can't get the slide to yeah. lock open. Oh, well here I, you know, and, and, that's one of the things when I I'm around newer instructors is it's like hey we have a vault full of guns in there for a reason. Pick up every single one of them and learn if nothing else learn the manual of arms on it. They're they're all similar but they all have quirks. You know, you know, hand somebody that's never played with a VP9 or a USP. Say here, take the magazine out of this, and they're looking for the button, and there is no button. There's you know, there's a lever yeah. right. But back to what and you were then
1: saying. How to use how to use that lever efficiently. Oh yeah. yeah. Is you have to spend time on these things to learn to run the tool efficiently, period. And they're all going to be a little different. And then, like I said, it's just like when you rent a car at the airport, you know, you have to sit down for a few minutes and figure out how to get in and out of the thing, how to adjust the mirrors. Where are the controls? Can I turn the windshield wipers on? Yeah, you, you know, again, we're human beings and you got to adapt to these situations and you know you can be a i only drive ford trucks person okay you you're gonna find yourself in a lot of trouble in life yeah with that you can prefer something you can (laughs) certainly prefer something but you know
0: but but wait uh, wait till you do what i did and go go on vacation to grand cayman and rent a ford fiesta and the and go get in the quote driver's side of a u.s vehicle
1: yeah and you're you're (laughs) missing a steering wheel wheels over there yeah
0: and 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 it's a standard it's a manual
1: yeah oh i got uh, i i can i can almost beat that we uh our first uh true armored vehicle for our swat team was a british humber pig Okay, you want to talk about learning right-hand drive with it's manual everything, manual trans, manual brakes, manual steering on a right-hand drive. That's an armored vehicle. It doesn't quite turn and operate like everything else. So I almost killed my entire SWAT team at one point, you know, jumping some railroad tracks on a hard turn. Uh, you know, nothing like having them hanging off on two wheels, but I mean it was an extraordinarily difficult vehicle to drive, but you got to adapt to it. It's not like, well, we can't go on the search warrant tonight because nobody knows how, how to, to drive, drive it. <laughs> the Humber Pig. Matter of fact, we, yeah, we taught our whole, all our patrol people how to drive the thing, um, it, because in an emergency, you get somebody shot laying out in the middle of the street, and you need to put some, you need to put an armored vehicle on top of them, and the only thing you have is a British Humber Pig. Better know how to figure out how to drive that thing. And again, this is life-saving equipment. You need to adapt to it. You just have got to learn to figure out how to efficiently run it. And it, it it may not efficiently run like your preferred way of doing things. It may not work well with your core way of doing things. You know, it's like all the people who are taking a pass on low light because I've got, you know, an X3, whatever, mod light, whatever, you know, one of multitude of lights out there that goes on a gun. And all of a sudden we don't need to be able to work with a flashlight anymore. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Or we're using flashlight techniques that are, that are moronic that are being adapted to a stance. What, what, you know, you, you, uh, that, well, the only way I can shoot this is if I hold this funky light a weird way with a bunch of things sticking out of the light that doesn't work like a light. The primary purpose at that point is sort of running the flashlight. You know, in low light, that's, you know, I got into low speed, low light. It's like, the, the you know, the real goal here is to see your threats, evaluate those threats, eliminate the threat, and the lethal force level of elimination of that threat is going to be such a low... Percentage in this—the real reality is efficiently see and find those threats. That's my priority. It's not that well. Malite my, my works with my grip You know, it's all of a sudden you need to sort of work through this to to solve the problem. Uh, we're, we're problem solving right now. We're not, you know, adapting Malite to my grip to efficiently uh, shoot some score on a, on a course, you know, it's, we're trying to dig, dig felon armed felons out of dark holes, you know, and properly evaluate and separate those from nice people who don't need to have a muzzle of a gun on them. There's a lot there that's more important than your grip right now.
0: So in, in our, our, our last little piece, we've almost gone an hour. And as usual, when the two of us get spiraled up, (laughs) it's hard to stop the train, um, (laughs) this is a trick question. So, what's better, Weaver or Isosceles?
1: Neither and both.
0: Final thought complete.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what's better, Weaver or Isosceles? Yeah, both and neither. <laughs> what's better, 45 or 9? Both and neither. Thanks, DB, as always. A reminder, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm still busting a gut from this podcast. Reminder: check out today's sponsors, Excess Sites, the title sponsor of the podcast, and the network currently, ccwsafe.com, use code OFFDUTY10 at checkout to save you 10% off your membership. I forgot to mention EDC Belt Co., the foundation belt, edcbeltco.com, and uh, sign up for the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway giving away that Flight 93 Memorial Ball Cap next week. If you haven't already, give us a like and a share when this you know on this podcast. It's social media, whatever. iTunes, share it with your friends. Helps us uh, sustain the channel and sustain the podcast and keep uh, rolling all this great controversial topic to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content. Commentary or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.